Well, thank you so much, young people, for leading us so well this morning. And uh, I've been listening to that song over and over again for the last five months. I came across it while I was studying and teaching through the book of Hosea on Wednesday nights, and I just couldn't get enough of it. And every time I got up to preach the next chapter of Hosea, that particular Wednesday night, the chorus of that song was just going through my mind over and over again. Your love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out on me. That is the message of the book of Hosea. And it is such a compelling message that I want everyone in our church to to experience it, to be encouraged by it, to be challenged by it, to be compelled by it. Not just those who are able to come on Wednesday nights to the bridge. And so today, what I'm going to attempt to do is take a 14-week series and boil it all down to one message. 14 messages in one, because we have got to get our minds and our hearts around the message of the book of Hosea. And so I want to give you a synopsis, if you will, which is just a a summary, a, a general survey of something, an outline of a plot of a story, a book, a play, a movie, or whatnot. And really, the, the book of Hosea is the greatest love story of all time. In fact, after teaching it, I would submit to you that it's the greatest story in the Bible. Because it is the story of the Bible. Now, some of you may object to that because you love the story of the prodigal son. Like so many believers do. I mean, it's probably the most well-known, beloved story in the Bible, Luke chapter 15, which is really the story most Christians would think of being the, the story of the Bible in a nutshell, in a microcosm form, in miniature. There you have wayward sinners coming to their senses and repenting of their sin and finding their loving Heavenly Father waiting to graciously forgive them and lavishly restore them. That is the message of the Bible. That's the main point of God's word. It's also the main point of the book of Hosea, which could be called the story of the prostitute wife. And what the, what the prodigal son is to the New Testament, the prostitute wife is to the Old Testament. And in the same way, the prodigal son foolishly wandered away from his father's love and stumbled into a life of sin, even so the prostitute wife foolishly wandered away from her husband's love and stumbled into a life of sin as well. But what sets the story of the prostitute wife apart from the story of the prodigal son, and I think what makes it even more glorious is that unlike the father who stayed at home and waited for his son to return, the husband went out looking for his wife and found her not in a pigsty, but on an auction block being sold as a sex slave to the highest bidder, and he bought her and carried her back home and nursed her back to health. Now, most of us would have no problem being likened to a prodigal son. Because we know scripture likens all of us to prodigal sons. But I wonder how many of us would be willing to be likened to a prostitute wife. But that is the very thing that the scripture likens us to. 
anyone familiar with the scriptures is aware of the theme of spiritual prostitution or harlotry or adultery, depending on what version you have, that's weaved throughout the Old Testament and, and climaxes in the New Testament. And yet this biblical theme is so shocking, it's so unsettling, that it's rarely ever addressed in the church today. In fact, I came across a book as I was preparing for our study through Hosea on Wednesday nights, and it, the title of the book was God's Unfaithful Wife, A Biblical Theology of Spiritual Adultery. And I, I needed it fast, and so I started calling around the local Christian bookstores, and uh, I said, hey, I, I need you to help me find a book. And they said, well, what's the title? And they're standing in front of their computer ready to type this thing in, right, to, to, to see if it's in their, their inventory. And so I said, it's called God's Unfaithful Wife, A Biblical Theology of Spiritual Adultery. And pretty much every time I said that, the answer was, wow, what is that book? Well, it's simply a, a book that was written by Ray Ortland Jr. that really tries to take all of the scriptures that make reference to this concept of spiritual adultery or spiritual prostitution and, and, and just create a big picture of what the Bible teaches about spiritual adultery. And it really all starts back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, when God established the institution of marriage as a covenant relationship between a man and a woman who were to be faithful to one another for the rest of their lives. And I believe that God created that marriage relationship to serve as a beautiful picture of his unconditional, sacrificial, everlasting love relationship that he would share with his covenant people. And so in the Old Testament, God is pictured as the husband of his covenant people, Israel. In the New Testament, Christ is pictured as the husband of his covenant people, the church. And back in the Old Testament, after delivering the people of Israel from bondage to Egypt, God established a covenant relationship with them at Mount Sinai, and he likened it to a marriage which they were both to be faithful to for as long as they both shall live. And God promised to bless his bride Israel as long as they only worshipped him and obeyed his commandments when they entered the promised land. But if she disobeyed him and worshipped the gods of the Canaanites and played the harlot, as he said time and time again in the Old Testament, he promised to punish her and remove her from the land. I'm sure you're familiar with this Mosaic Covenant it was made back in Exodus chapter 34, and uh, this is where, this is where uh, Moses had asked God to show him his glory. He wanted to see God, being up on the mountain uh, with all this smoke and fire and this voice, giving the Ten Commandments was not enough. He wanted to see who he was, who was doing all this talking, and he was creating all this fire and smoke, and he says, Lord, I want to show me your glory. And God said, well, I'm sorry, Moses, I can't show you my glory because it'll kill you. So I'll tell you what I'll do is, is uh, I'll put you in this little cave, and I'm going to walk by, I'm going to put my hand in front of that cave, and then when I get past you, I'm going to remove my hand, and you're going to see my backside. Interestingly enough, you never, Moses never describes what he saw, but he describes what he heard. And this is how God revealed himself. This was the glory of God as revealed to Moses in Exodus chapter 34. It said, the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, 
The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindnesses for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And so God reveals himself as this God of love, this God of grace, this God of mercy, this forgiving God. And then right on the heels of that, he renews his covenant with his people. And this loving God says in verse 10, Behold, I'm going to make a covenant before all your people, and I will perform miracles which have not been produced in all the earth, nor among any of the nations. And all the people among whom you live will see the working of the Lord, for it is a fearful thing that I'm going to perform with you. Be sure to observe what I'm commanding you this day. Behold, I'm going to drive out the Amorite before you and the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you're going or it will become a snare in your midst. But rather, you are to tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, cut down their ashram, for they shall not worship any other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Otherwise, you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they would play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and someone might invite you to eat of his sacrifice, and you might take some of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters might play the harlot with their gods and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. Well, as we know, Israel broke their wedding vows broke the covenant, disobeyed God, and went after other gods, which in God's eyes was tantamount to adultery. Listen to a few occasions where God had to rebuke the nation of Israel for their adultery. This is Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 through 3. They hadn't even gotten to the promised land yet. And they already had violated the covenant with the Moabites. Numbers chapter 25, while Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they invited the people to sacrifice uh, to, to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. And then, I'm sure to Moses' disappointment, Right before Moses died, God told him that his people were not going to be faithful to the covenant. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 16, the Lord said to Moses, behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers, and this people will arise and play the harlot with the strange gods of the land into the midst of which they're going and will forsake me and break my covenant, which I have made with them. Of course, we know the age of the judges, the period of the judges, once they entered into the promised land, and the judges were just, the age of the judges was just pure chaos. And in Judges chapter 2, verse 17, it says this, yet they did not listen to their judges, for they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked, and obeying the commandments of the Lord, they did not do as their fathers. And so again, time and time, we see the nation of Israel going out and instead of tearing down all the false places of worship, all the false idols, 
and, and the statues and the poles where, where Baal was worshipped in, in Canaan, they, they joined in with that pagan worship. And in response to their spiritual adultery, God sent prophets to confront his people, and they minced no words in rebuking the people for their unfaithfulness to their marriage vows to God. And they called them whores. They called them harlots. They called them prostitutes. And the imagery of Israel as God's unfaithful wife was graphically depicted through uh, all the major prophets, particularly Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Let me just give you an example from each. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 21 Isaiah chapter 1, verse 21. Isaiah said, How the faithful city has become a harlot. She who was full of justice, righteousness, once lodged in her, but now murderers. Talking about Jerusalem. Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. Jeremiah chapter 3, starting in verse 6. Listen to what Jeremiah said. Then the Lord said to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what faithless Israel did? She went up on every high hill and under every green tree. She was a harlot there. I thought after she was done all these things, she will return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw that for all the adulteries of the faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went and was a harlot also. Because of the lightness of her harlotry, she polluted the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. So again, very clearly, this is not a reference to literal adultery. While that was going on, what God had in mind was spiritual adultery, committing adultery with stones and trees. These were the things that the idols were made out of. This is the, these are things that people would worship, the false gods. Ezekiel chapter 16 Maybe some of the most graphic language in all the Old Testament about this concept of spiritual adultery, harlotry, really the whole chapter we could read, but let's just read verses 30 and following. This is Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel says, How languishing is your heart, declares the Lord God, while you do all these things, the actions of a bold-faced harlot. I mean, you're just brazen in your harlotry, in your immorality. When you built your shrine at the beginning of every street and made your high place in every square and disdaining money, you were not like a harlot. You adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband, men give gifts to all harlots, but you give your gifts to all your lovers to bribe them to come to you from every direction for your harlotries. Thus you are different from these women in your harlotries in that no one plays the harlot as you do because you give money and no money is given you thus you are different I mean Israel had taken harlotry to a whole new level taken prostitution to a whole new level spiritual prostitution and instead of getting paid right for their services they were paying others to be with them One other passage earlier in Ezekiel, and I think this would be very easily overlooked in light of these other more graphic, in-your-face um, pictures. Ezekiel chapter 6, verse 8, However, I will leave a remnant for you 
will have those who escape the sword among the nations when you are scattered among the countries. In other words, God was promising that even in the midst of the judgment that was to come for their spiritual adultery, that he would preserve a faithful remnant. But notice what he says in verse 9. Then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations to which they will be carried captive how I have been hurt by their adulterous hearts which turned away from me and by their eyes which played the harlot after their idols and they will loathe themselves in their own sight for the evils which they have been committed which they have committed for all their abominations beloved i think it is vital extremely vital for us to always remember that whenever we sin we not only break god's law we break god's heart Sin grieves the heart of God. When's the last time you loathed your sin, not because of the consequences that you were facing, but because you grieved the heart of your lover God, the one who has loved you unlike anyone has ever loved you? And so God called all the prophets to express to his people, how much their sin hurt him and how heartbroken he was over their spiritual adultery. But God called one prophet to not merely express God's hurt and heartbreak, but to actually experience it himself. God called his prophets to do some strange strange things. If you know anything about the prophets, Isaiah had to walk around naked and barefoot for three years. Jeremiah had to wear a yoke of some sort and bury his undergarment under a pile of rocks. Not sure what that was all about. Ezekiel had to lay on his side for over a year and not move and cook his food over human excrement. But no prophet received a stranger, more difficult task than Hosea because God called him to marry an unfaithful woman. So he would feel the same pain and grief and shame and disgrace that God felt as a result of Israel's adultery against him. I mean, let's be honest. uh, I think a married person's worst nightmare is to have their spouse cheat on them. And those who've experienced that are able to feel just the slightest tinge on a human level of the grief and the pain and the heartache that we cause God whenever we sin. It's like we're cheating on him. You might be sitting here thinking, well, listen, it's, if my spouse ever cheats on me, I'm just going to divorce him. I, I got an out. Bible says, except for immorality, right? But I think that's why this story of Hosea is so profoundly compelling because even though Hosea had every right, according to the Jewish law, to divorce his wayward wife, God commanded him to relentlessly pursue her in love even while she kept running around on him and running away from him. And consequently, to some, I imagine that Hosea looked like an absolute fool. It made no sense to his companions, the people of Israel, why he would continue to love this unfaithful wife who had caused him so much grief and pain. They may have said, man, you're crazy. 
Why would you waste your time and and energy and money trying to, to win back this tramp, man? Just dump her. But God wanted Hosea's marriage to be an unforgettable object lesson of his faithful, borderline foolish love for his unfaithful people. Donald Gray Barnhouse, one of my favorite preachers of old, very illustrative guy, said this in commenting on the story of Hosea. He said, who can explain the sanity of true love? In other words, it doesn't make sense. Love is of God, and it is infinite. Love is sovereign. Love is apart from reason. Love is not according to logic. Love is according to love. Thus it was with Hosea, for he was playing the part that God has played with you all your life and with me. And then he said this, the pursuing love of God is the greatest wonder of the spiritual universe. He goes on to describe this loving pursuit. He said, we leave God and run from his will because we want so much to have our own way. We look back thinking we've outdistanced him, sure that we have succeeded in escaping from him, but then we turn quickly and we find that he is right there, pleading with the eyes of love and showing himself once more to be the tender and faithful one, loving to the end. He will always say, my child, My name and nature are love, and I must act according to that which I am. And so it is that that I have pursued you, to tell you that when you are tired of your running and your wandering, I will be there to draw you to myself once more. And then Barnhouse proposes, he says, when we see this love at work through the heart of Hosea, we may wonder if God is really like that. I mean, is God really like this? And he answers, he says, but everything, everything in the word and in experience shows us that he is. And then he concluded in this way. He said, he will give man the trees of the forest and the iron in the ground. Then he'll give to man the brains to make an ax from the iron to cut down a tree and fasten it into a cross. He will give man the ability to make a hammer and nails, and when man has the cross and the hammer and the nails, the Lord will allow man to take hold of him and bring him to that cross. He will stretch out his hands upon it and allow man to nail him to that cross, and in so doing will take the sins of man upon himself and make it possible for those who have despised and rejected him to come unto him and know the joy of sins removed and forgiven, to know the assurance of pardon and eternal life, and to enter into the prospect of the hope of glory with him forever. This is even our God, and there is none like unto him. And nowhere is the incomparable, even incomprehensible, inconceivable love of God portrayed more profoundly in the scriptures than here in the book of Hosea. And God, crazy enough, crazy as is, devoted one entire book of his word to show us what he thinks of and how he responds to spiritual adultery. This must be pretty important to the heart of God. 
And just to give you a feel for some of what's in the book of Hosea, Hosea chapter 4, verse 10, they will eat but not have enough. They will play the harlot but not increase because they have stopped giving heed to the Lord. Harlotry, wine, and new wine take away the understanding. My people consult their wooden idol and their diviners and wand informs them for the spirit of harlotry has led them astray and they have played the harlot departing from their God. Verse 18, their liquor gone, they play the harlot continually. Chapter 5, verse 3, I know Ephraim and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the harlot. Israel has defiled itself. Their deeds will not allow them to return to their God. For a spirit of harlotry is within them, for they do not know the Lord. And then chapter 7, verse 4, they are like, they are all adulterers like an oven heated by the baker who ceases to stir up the fire from the kneading of the dough until it's leavened. In other words, they are so, their lust is, is burned so hot that they don't even have to stoke the fire anymore. That's how far gone they are in their adultery. And so the adultery of, of Israel and the, and, and the jealousy of God reached this fever pitch, this, this, this peak temperature during the days of Hosea. And so the nation was sharing their devotion and their love for God with, with Baal and other nations. And God could no longer look on while his people had affair after affair with other gods and other nations. And so God raised up Hosea to expose Israel's sin and exhort them to repent in order to avoid his impending judgment. And so we start in chapter 1, which really is a, a simple overview of the entire book, the message of the entire book. And in chapter 1, it says, verse 1, the word of the Lord which came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. And so God raised up Hosea to preach his word to the northern kingdom of Israel, the 10 northern tribes during their last 45 years leading up to their destruction and deportation by the nation of Assyria. And Hosea ministered during the reigns of four kings of Judah that are mentioned there, and also through the tragic reigns of seven kings of Israel, beginning with Jeroboam, who is mentioned there in verse 1. I believe Jeroboam was mentioned there because he was the greatest king of all the kings of Israel, and during his reign, Israel uh, experienced great prosperity, great peace, and uh, their borders were uh, extended to their original borders, and yet in this soft, easy, comfortable environment, it, it created a, a fertile breeding ground for compromise and sin, and the nation was just rife with idolatry and immorality, and after the death of Jeroboam, Israel rapidly declined into the state of spiritual uh, and political anarchy because almost all the remaining kings after him were assassinated as one coup after another just tore the political structure apart of the nation of Israel. Notice his calling in verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Isaiah, Go take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblim. So here's God commanding his holy prophet to marry a wife of harlotry. 
Now, Bible scholars go back and forth whether or not God was telling him to actually marry a prostitute, an actual prostitute, or a woman who would become one afterwards. And either way, I think the point's the same, that Hosea knew going into the marriage, he went into this thing eyes wide open, that his wife would forsake her wedding vows and be unfaithful to him. Can you imagine walking down the aisle knowing full well that your spouse was going to cheat on you someday? And not just once, but multiple times. And yet that's what God asked Jose to do. And to not only marry a woman of harlotry, but have children of harlotry. Children of unfaithfulness, which may mean that Hosea's children would be the result of his wife's unfaithfulness. In other words, they would be illegitimate children conceived through her adulterous affairs. It may be that Hosea was the biological father of all three of his children, or just the first two, or just the first one, or none of them. It really doesn't matter. What matters is the names of these kids. Notice what comes next, verse 3, and she conceived and bore him a son... And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel for yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day I will break the, vow of Israel, break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Name her Lo-Ruamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I would ever forgive them. But I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by the Lord their God and will not deliver them by the bow, sword, battle horses, or horsemen. When she had weaned Lo-Ruamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, Name him Loami, for you are not my people and I am not your God. And so the Lord provided Hosea and Gomer three children, two sons and a daughter, and uh, did not give them the prerogative that he gives us to name our kids whatever we want. He told them exactly what he wanted him to name the kids. And these prophetic names really testified to the deteriorating relationship between God and Israel and foreshadowed the coming judgment. The place of judgment would be Jezreel, the valley of Jezreel. The reason for judgment was that God would no longer pity them, and the result of the judgment was they would no longer be his people. And so Jezreel means God will scatter, which signified the destruction of Assyria, or excuse me, destruction by Assyria. Loruma meant unpitied or unloved, which signified Israel's captivity in Assyria, that he would let his people endure the, the, the pain and the heartbreak of, of captivity. He would not have pity on them. He would not love them. And then Loami means not my people, signifying that God would revoke his covenant promises to Israel. And yet this would not be the end of God's marriage to Israel. Because even though God would punish them, he wouldn't abandon them. And notice what he says in verse 10. And see if this doesn't sound familiar. If you know anything about the covenants of God, particularly the Abrahamic covenant. Verse 10, yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in that place where it is said to them, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. Things are looking up, right? 
And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together and they will appoint for themselves one leader and they will go up from the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, Ami, and to your sisters, Ruamah. And so right after this very sobering prophecy that Israel Israel was going to be severely judged by God, there was this joyous prophecy that he was going to restore Israel at some point in the future. And the fact that God changes the names of of the kids, Hosea's kids, is a way of providing a a ray of hope in the midst of a gloomy forecast of judgment to come. Notice he says, they used to be called not my people, verse 10, but now they will be called you are my sons. And now your brothers will be named Ami and to your sister Ruamah. In other words, now you will be loved, you will be pitied, and you will be my people. And God will no longer scatter you as he will in the land of Jezreel. He will bring you back together. Chapter 2 follows the same pattern of chapter 1 in that half the chapter highlights Israel's condemnation, the judgment to come. And the second half highlights Israel's restoration. And again, here, Israel's unfaithfulness is exposed And God says, you're going to have to be punished for this, but at the same time, I will restore you. This punishment won't be permanent. I will restore you. And so Israel's restoration is beautifully depicted in chapter 3, which is really the the heart of the book of Hosea. I mean, if you had to do away with everything else, don't do away with chapter 3. Chapter 3, those five simple verses of chapter 3 are the heart and soul of this book. Because here, Hosea, according to the command of God and obedience to God's command, willingly endured the shame and gladly bore the cost of buying his wayward wife back from a public slave auction. Notice chapter 3, verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, go again. As if, like, how many times am I going to do this, God? How many times are you going to tell me to go back to this wife? How many, is it, how many times has she, is she cheated on me? How many men has she been with? Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband. Apparently, she had shacked up with this guy, and she had landed maybe with this one guy, and maybe they had gotten married uh, even. He says, go again. I want you to love that woman. Yet she's an adulteress. I get that, Hosea. I know what I speak of. I'm in the same kind of bad marriage, okay? So I can, I can feel your pain, Hosea, but you're feeling my pain, and that's making you a better prophet. And so he says, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. And so again, Hosea was just living God's nightmare. And verse 2, so I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. This is one of the most, one of the clearest pictures, types of the redemption that God provides us in Christ when he 
delivers us from the slave market of sin through the price of his son on the cross. Powerful. But notice, in the historical context, he's talking about buying his wife for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and half of barley. The going rate for a slave in those days was 30 pieces of silver. So this is the half price sale. She's 50% off. And I think this indicates that Gomer was, was worth half the price of a normal slave. In other words, she was in bad shape at this point. She had been used and abused by her lovers, and the last of which had offered her up for sale to the highest bidder. And here comes Hosea to buy back his wife. I came across a written dramatization by a Bible college teacher that I thought was extremely touching, and I want to read it for you. This may have been what that scene looked like that day at that public flea market, if you will. The author writes, we don't know exactly why her price was so low, but it clearly means that she was not looked upon as having much value among her would-be buyers. Maybe her physical appearance was repulsive. Her clothes were probably filled with the stench of a rotting life. Her hair perhaps was unkept and weathered. Her body may have been unfit, diseased, scarred, or just plain unable to fulfill the physical duties of a domestic slave or unable to perform the sexual fantasies of the hungry men looking on with blank stares and hollow eyes. And so one by one, the other more beautiful, more physically appealing women were brought, bought with a high price. The shame of being passed over as a worthless product was probably nothing new to Gomer. By this time, she couldn't remember what it felt like to be valuable in someone else's eyes. But then she heard a familiar voice. I'll take her. No, not that one. The other one. The one in the back. Gomer heard the onlooking crowd snicker and laugh. Hosea was more insistent. No, not that one. The one behind her. Yes, the one with the muddy dress. The crowd laughed even harder, shaking their heads in disbelief. Gomer then looked out past her crusty, stench-filled hair and saw a face from the distant past. It was Hosea, her husband. The man who many years ago had found her on the streets and married her, the man who had endured six or seven affairs, who knows, she had lost track by then, the man who kept on pursuing her was once again seeking to buy her back. Me? She wonders. Why in the world would he want anything to do with me? Hosea, more adamant than before, said, yes, yes, I know who it is. I want her. I'll pay any price for her. I love her, and I want to be with her because I delight in her. At that, the whole crowd doubled over in laughter. One villager shoved a finger into Hosea's chest and blurted out, that's the woman who has slept with half the guys in the village. She's made a mockery of you. She shamed you beyond what any guy could endure. She didn't even want to be with you then. And look at her now. What a despicable mess. But Hosea fought his way through the crowd and 
cried out. I don't care what she looks like. I don't, I don't care what she's done. I don't, I don't care what she may end up doing. Even if she never learns to love or respect me, I love her and I will never stop loving her. I have forgiven her and I will continue to forgive her because that's my wife and she is the most beautiful person in my eyes. I delight in her. I cherish her. I'll pay any price. So get out of my way and give me my wife. And then the author makes this application. He says, Hosea's scandalous, shameless, unconditional, never-ending, one-way love for his very unlovable wife is a snapshot, a mini-picture of God's grace towards us. Jesus demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still whores, Christ eagerly climbed up on the cross to make us his own. We are are Gomer. And you know what? Hosea had every legal right by Jewish law to terminate that marriage, to divorce Gomer. It would have been completely justified for him to stone her to death. In fact, he could have got him to do it right then and there if he so chose. No one would have blamed him. But aren't you glad that grace is greater than law? Greater than even the power of revenge and retaliation. And so he gently put Gomer's clothes back on and tenderly picked her up in his strong, loving arms and he carried her home. And then he said to her, verse 3, You shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man, so I will also be towards you. For the sons of Israel will remain for many days without a king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, and without ephod or household idols. And so this is talking about a period of isolation where which was symbolic of Israel's exile in Assyria, where they would be separated, they would be isolated from their sinful practices in order to bring them to a place of true repentance so they would return to the Lord and be restored. And so God could have divorced his wayward wife or destroyed her for that matter and been perfectly justified. But he chose to discipline her instead. And so rather than enabling his his unfaithful wife to keep running around on him without any consequences, God demonstrated his great love for her by allowing her to experience the sad, painful consequences of her own sinful choices with the hope that she would come to her senses and come back home. And we need to understand that God loves us so much that he will do whatever it takes to bring us back to him if we wander away. And even though it may appear harsh, God in his love hurts us to heal us. It's what you could call tough love. Look at verse five. Once again, this this shining hope afterward, after this time of exile, The sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. Don't miss that last phrase, in the last 
days. I think this prophecy of Israel's restoration was not talking primarily about them returning from exile as it was talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. When during the millennial kingdom, the covenant promises that God made to Abraham and David will be finally fulfilled. And the reason why we believe there's a future for Israel because if, if all the, the, the curses that God promised to, to, to lay out on Israel, they were literally fulfilled, weren't they? Then why wouldn't we also believe that all the blessings that God gave to Israel would be literally fulfilled as well? And so chapters 1 through 3 of Hosea is all about Hosea's marriage. And then from this point on, chapter 4 all the way to the end of the book is all about Hosea's messages. And so he springboards off his own experience with his unfaithful wife, Gomer, and now he applies all of that to God's relationship or Israel's relationship with God. And so what he does here for the majority of this, of this book is just to, to show Israel how guilty they were of violating their covenant with God. And as a result, God would curse them. God would judge them for worshiping foreign gods and forming alliances with foreign nations. And what was so ironic to me as I was studying this is that God used the very nations that Israel was trusting in to protect her, to punish her. We've all heard the expression codependency. I don't agree with that label. It's typically a psychological label that, you know, it's talking about people that are just so dependent on others and, and sometimes they're in these volatile, harmful relationships but they just keep going back, right, to these relationships and they're so dependent on the relationship that they'll be used and abused through that relationship. And I would just say this, God oftentimes uses the very one you're depending on to punish you for depending on them rather than him. And that's what we see in the book of Hosea. And so in this series of sermons, um, one chapter after another, Hosea warned Israel of the judgment to come if she didn't repent of her sin and return to the Lord. But at this point in their history, Israel wasn't even ready to admit their sin, let alone repent of their sin. And so God had to expose her sin and punish her accordingly. And so Israel had to learn the hard way that nothing escapes the watchful eye of God, and God is not mocked. A man reaps what he, what? Sows. And oftentimes God punishes us by allowing us to simply experience the consequences of our sinful decisions and our sinful desires. And we need to see the loving hand of God even when we're having to endure the consequences of our sin because they are the very tool that God uses to help us see our sin and repent of our sin so we can be restored to a right relationship with Him. And it's typically when we're dealing with the consequences of our sin that we might cry, we might come to tears, we might get emotional, we might confess our sin to God and to, to others and tell them how sorry we are for our sin and that we'll never do it again. And unfortunately, sometimes what appears to be genuine godly sorrow at first that looks like it's leading to repentance is really just worldly sorrow. 
Because as soon as you're done mouthing the words and saying all the right things and jumping through all the spiritual hoops, the moment you have opportunity, you go right back to doing the same thing again. And so we see that throughout this latter half of the book of Hosea, these, these um, moments of feigned repentance where Israel says things like he did in chapter 6, come let us return to the Lord for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He'll revive us after two days. He'll raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. Sounds good, doesn't it? But then verse 4, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. I can't trust a word you say. You're hot and cold. You say one thing and you do another. And I'm sure that Gomer shed many a tear as she assured and reassured Hosea that she would never, I'll never cheat on you again. But her promise only lasted until that next guy came along who showed her attention. And her lust was inflamed and she would commit adultery yet again, just like the nation of Israel did time and time again, and just like we sin over and over again. And yet despite our persistent promiscuity, Israel's persistent promiscuity, God is torn over what to do with his people who he loves so dearly. And chapter 11 is a very interesting chapter where God yearns over his people and and frankly, I wasn't sure what to do with this chapter when I got there because it deals with a part of God that I've not thought a whole lot about. And that's his feelings, his emotions. I mean, I don't even know what to do with my feelings and emotions. How am I gonna figure out God's feelings and emotions, right? And yet what we see in this chapter is that God apparently experiences the same anguish in his heart that we do when we wrestle over what to do when our children sin. Anybody ever relate to that as parents? You you just wrestle, what do I do? And here the analogy shifts from a husband and a wife to a father and a son. Notice Chapter 11, verse 1, when Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incest to idols, yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of a man, with bonds of love, and I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws, and I bent down and fed them. And so you see this picture of a, of a father with a beloved son, raising him, teaching him to walk, uh, being there whenever he would fall and stumble and pick him up and kiss his boo-boo, right? Feeding him by his own hand, bending down, condescending to this little boy. And so here we have God exposed Really, the heart and mind of God exposed in human terms. Now, granted, we have to be extremely careful whenever we think about God or talk about God in human terms. Whenever we compare God to us, we're on dangerous ground. But having said that, the Bible does say 
that God created us in his, what? Image, in his likeness. And since we, we have feelings, we have emotions, I think it's safe to assume that God has feelings and God has emotions. We just need to look at Jesus, who was God in human flesh. And Jesus wept. And so like any loving parent, God wants to bless his children, even maybe spoil his children and do everything possible for them. But because he's holy and just, he knows that he must discipline when they, when they disobey. He, he just can't be a permissive parent. And go, I just love them too much to spank them. That's not what God's saying at all. He's saying, I love them so much, I am going to spank them. And so the challenge lies in wanting to show love and punishment and grace and justice and mercy and wrath all at the same time. And we have a hard time doing that because we're just men. But God is not a man. According to Hosea chapter 11, verse 8, notice, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim, which were two cities that were destroyed along with Sodom and Gomorrah? My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. I mean, his heart was, was turning inside of him. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. So because God is God and not man, he found a way to satisfy the churning of his heart for both justice and mercy both wrath and love. And so he upheld his justice by punishing Christ for our sin and at the same time he displayed his love by sparing us his wrath. And so Christ's death on the cross is the ultimate expression of God's wrath and God's mercy, which he demonstrated all at once in order to redeem and restore sinners like us to himself. And this whole hope of redemption, restoration, really comes to this glorious crescendo in Hosea chapter 14. And after seven straight chapters of this preaching about Israel's sin and how God was going to punish them for it. I mean, it was just, oh, we were here on Wednesday night going, man, is this ever going to end? It's all about sin. Every week is about sin and judgment and punishment and wrath and, and, and you, you, you reap what you sow and suffer the consequences for your sin. And now Hosea comes full circle and he highlights here in chapter 14, how God's undying love for his faithless people would ultimately prevail. This is like the rainbow after the storm. Verse 1 of 14, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, God's giving them, this is what you say. Take away all iniquity and receive us graciously that we may present the fruit of our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say again our God to the work of our hands. For in you the orphan finds mercy, 
And God says, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. We know that the generation that Hosea was prophesying to wouldn't heed these words. They were rebellious. But these words would serve to sustain the faithful remnant that God promised during the days of the captivity to come. And James Montgomery Boyce says it well that he says, in that day, in that day of judgment, in that day of exile, they would undoubtedly wonder if God had cast them off utterly. They would feel forsaken. But God wants them to know that their captivity is due not to his wishes for them or abandonment of them, but to their sin, and that in spite of their sin, the way of return stands open. And then look at the last verse. A very interesting, intriguing way to end a prophetic book with a proverb. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them, but transgressors will stumble in them. Hosea was appealing to all those who would read his prophecy, those who would sit under the teaching of his prophecy like we are this morning, to be wise and heed the lessons. Wise people listen to God's word and obey what it says. If you listen and obey, you'll enjoy the blessing of God. But if you fail to listen and obey, you'll have to endure the consequences of your sin. The way of the transgressor is hard, is difficult. And Israel found that out the hard way. They failed to listen to Hosea. They were unwise. And so they stumbled in sin and they ended up in... That doesn't have to happen to any of us. Because if we apply the message of this book to our lives, we can avoid stumbling into sin and falling away from God and we can stay walking in righteousness and experiencing God's blessing. And just this is very important that we apply the message of this book. And so let me suggest just a few practical ways you can apply the message of Hosea to your life. You ready? Number one, if you're not a Christian, become one. If you're not a Christian, become one. That's the first most practical application of the book of Hosea. Because Jesus called those who are unwilling to believe in him an evil, sinful, adulterous generation. And if you are not a believer in Christ, you are evil, sinful, and adulterous. That's what Jesus says. And as a result, you deserve to be punished for your rebellion against God. However, God demonstrated his love towards sinful people by sending his son to die for us even while we were rebelling against him, even while we were committing adultery against him, even while we were doing evil, sinful things. And it is through Christ's precious blood shed on the cross that we can be redeemed from our futile way of life. And so you don't have to keep wandering the streets like a spiritual prostitute looking for something, someone to satisfy your heart. 
God offers to buy you out of the slave market of this world with the price of his son's blood if you'll repent of your sin and commit your life to follow and obey him as your Lord and Savior. So if you're not a Christian, become one. Become one. Respond to this relentless redeemer who has been pursuing you your entire life. Number two, if you're a Christian, stay devoted to Christ. Stay devoted to Christ. We know that this husband-wife analogy was carried over from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Paul likened believers to the bride of Christ. As Christians, we have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. We have been bought with a price. We're not our own. We're now married to Christ and must remain faithful to Christ. And we know that Satan uses the things of this world to deceive us and distract us and to draw us away from our devotion to Christ. And so whenever we seek to find pleasure in the things of this world, it's as if we're having an affair with the world. It's like we're sleeping with the enemy. We're cheating on God. In fact, James says in James chapter 4, verse 4, he, he called the Jewish Christians he was writing to, he says, you adulteresses. Don't you know that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? How would you respond this morning if I got up here and confessed to you that I had committed adultery? Well, I have. And not just once, but multiple times. In fact, I've done it so many times, I've lost count. And so have you. And I know there's like a sigh of relief, like, oh, I'm so glad he's talking about spiritual things and not like literal adultery. <laughs> but that's where we're wrong. Because spiritual adultery is just as bad, if not worse, in God's eyes than physical adultery. Francis Schaeffer said it this way. He said, when those who claim to be God's people turn aside from the word of God and from Christ, this is more heinous in the sight of God than the worst case of infidelity in marriage. For it destroys the reality, the great central bridegroom-bride relationship. And we need to realize that God takes this relationship with us very seriously. He is a jealous God. And rightfully so, based on who he is and what we are and what he's done to buy us. We belong to him. And it causes him unimaginable pain and heartache when we share our devotion with anyone or anything besides him. But the good news is that no matter how far we may wander away, no matter how many times we cheat on God, we can have the confidence that he will have mercy on us and graciously forgive us and reaffirm his love for us. That is amazing, undeserved, even scandalous love. And so if you're not a Christian, become one. If you are a Christian, stay devoted to Christ. And then lastly, if you're married, stay married. If you're married, stay married. Because Christ continues to love us even when we are unfaithful to him. And guess what? He calls us to love our spouse just like he loves us. 
God has been very gracious to my wife and I. And up to this point, neither of us have ever cheated on the other. We've been faithful to one another by the grace of God. But that doesn't mean it won't happen or it couldn't happen. And God forbid if it were to happen and one of us were to be unfaithful to the other, we've already discussed our plan. And by God's grace, we would follow the example of Hosea. Because we're confident that if God could provide Hosea the grace to sustain him through the pain and the heartbreak, the nightmare of adultery, that he could provide us with the grace to endure it as well. And personally, I can't think of a more beautiful, a more powerful picture of the gospel than a husband or a wife relentlessly pursuing reconciliation after one of them had committed adultery. That's the gospel, according to Hosea. God has loved you with an everlasting love. And he calls us to love others with that same kind of love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this shocking, stirring story tucked away in the dark pages of the Old Testament where we don't often ever get to. But Lord, thank you for bringing it to life in my heart and Lord, into the heart of our church on Wednesday nights. Lord, and even this morning, I pray that this would just serve to pique people's interests and appetite, what their appetite to go read the book themselves and to study it themselves, but most importantly, to live it out. Lord, and I want to pray for anyone here this morning who may be in the very same situation Hosea was, pursuing an unfaithful spouse. Lord, I don't even know what that would be like. I can't imagine the pain, the heartbreak, the grief, but Lord, you know. And I pray that they would find that enough, knowing that you know what it's like, that you can feel their pain and that they're not going through anything that you haven't gone through and that you still go through every day with them and that that would just give them hope and strength and courage and that they would find your grace sufficient for them to continue to pursue relentlessly their spouse, whether they respond or not, simply so the gospel could be glorified and honored and exalted and that people would come to know Christ through their testimony, through their example of a, of a failed marriage that was reconciled and restored to the glory of you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.